First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Peter here is, uh, I want to remind you, he is writing to people that he's never met. They're in Asia Minor for the most part, most are Gentiles, most are suffering, most have, uh, are having a very difficult time economically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, like us. And in this fourth chapter, he is going to reiterate the theme of suffering and significance. And I thought before I'd read this text, I'd remind you of a story I've told you before. Some may not be reminded because they've forgotten it. <laughs> Guy dies and goes to heaven, and Peter meets him at the gate. He says to Peter, you know, Peter, it's been a tough road for me. Most of my life, I have been on the bottom rather than top. And there I was minding my own business and the waters rose and I couldn't swim and I died. I drowned. Do you think it would be okay if I told my story? Peter said to him, sure, but remember Noah's here. <laughs> and that's a little bit what about what uh, Peter's writing here in this text to us, all of us. Beginning in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not want to join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, so that judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. At the height of World War II, a British 
professor named C.S. Lewis wrote a book. And in that book, he noted that in terms of moral standards, every major religion in the world is the same. Every major religion urges its adherents to do the right thing. So Lewis said, you really can't tell whether a person's a Christian or a Buddhist by their behavior. So what is it that makes a Christian life a Christian life as opposed to a Muslim life? Lewis says, it's not by how you live, but it's why you live the way you live. And that is exactly what Peter is telling us in this text. Years ago, a well-known Christian businessman was in a city out in the West. Large city, large church, urban church. And the very famous minister saw this well-known Christian businessman, and he said to him right before the service began, would you come and give a testimony, a, a greeting? The man said, I'd love to. He got up in front of these thousands of people pre-COVID. He began to talk, and he became very effusive. He talked about all of the ways in which God had blessed him. He talked about his faithfulness to the Lord. He said to them, you know, I believe it's because I've been faithful to the Lord that He's made me incredibly wealthy, given me an enterprise that's known around the world, given me an excellent reputation. If I would tell you all the wonderful things the Lord did in my life, you wouldn't believe it. I have all the money I could ever want. In fact, there are a number of leading ministries in this world that I've bankrolled, and I could tell you their names, but I won't. And then he said, after 15 minutes of this, what more could the Lord give me? And as he paused to make the point, some guy in the back row said, how about a good dose of humility? The word humility is from a Latin root, humus, which means of the earth. So literally what humility means is to descend to the lowest parts of human existence, the lowest level. And that's exactly what Peter is prescribing in this letter, but think of who he is. There are four places in the New Testament where the writers give us a list of the disciples of Jesus. And every list has the same members on that list, except there's deviation at the bottom of a couple of those lists. We find a list in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, and one in the book of Acts. And when you get to the bottom of those lists and you compare them, there's a little bit of diversity in terms of order. But there's absolutely no diversity at the top of the list. Peter's always at the top of the list. So when they list the disciples, Peter's mentioned first. Now why is that? Well, we know that Jesus turned to his disciples one day and farthest part of the 
uh, Middle East that he had ever taken them. And he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You will no longer be called Simon, but Peter, which means a rock. And upon your testimony, I'll build my church. That's one reason. Maybe two, his confession and Jesus renaming him. But think also about the empty tomb. The Bible tells us when an angel shows up, there are three women. And he says, the angel says to the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter that I've gone before them into Galilee. Think of Jesus after he's resurrected. He takes time to come to a beach and he sees the disciples out in a boat. He's come to that beach for one principal reason, and that's to restore Peter. And yet, you know the story. We preached it, we talked about it, we studied it a few months ago. All Peter can think about is himself. So what changes him? What moves him from a self-focus to a Christ-focus? What moves him from hubris to humility? What humbles him to the place where he can say, to Jesus Christ belongs all glory, dominion forever and ever, amen, and mean it? What changes him? Exactly what he tells us here in today's text, chapter 4. Look what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking is that? It's exactly the same way of thinking that Paul elaborates to the Christians at Philippi. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. So what is it that humbles Peter? What is it that gets Peter to the place where he's not thinking of himself, but of the Lord and all of those the Lord has called him to witness to? There's only one thing. And that's the suffering of Jesus on the cross. In 1952, Simon and Schuster published a book, a Christian book. And they republished it three times. It was written by a British professor whose name is J.B. Phillips. Many of you know he did a paraphrase of the Bible called the J.B. Phillips Bible. Some people refer to it as Philip 66, 66 books. But what isn't known about J.B. Phillips by many is the fact that he went through all of his life in clinical depression. He suffered clinical depression, bouts of it. And yet not only did he translate and paraphrase the Scriptures, he also wrote many other books, including this one in 1952, the first time it was published, Your God is Too Small. And his thesis there is, we as Christians have a God that's far more majestic, far more excellent, far greater than we can even comprehend. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here in this text. He is speaking to Christians, including us, and he's saying, your view of the cross is way too small. To borrow from Paul again, what Peter is saying is the cross is broader, it is longer, it is higher, 
it is deeper than anything that you can imagine. What Peter is saying is, there is a majesty in the suffering of Jesus Christ at the cross that is so extraordinary when you fix your eyes on Jesus on the cross and in his suffering, it will begin to change your life in three clear ways. First, Peter says it'll change your mind. Look at verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. In 1970, my father resigned as controller of JL Steel here in Pittsburgh. LTV had come in and bought them, and my father's boss said to him, we want to keep you, but we need for you to let some of the men that work for you go. And my dad said, I'm not doing it. And the guy said, well, that means you're going to have to go, and so will they. And my dad said, so be it. And the reason my dad didn't want to let those men go was because they all were in his Bible study that met in his corner office on Friday morning before work started. He was out of work for eight months. On the last week of his severance, Pat Robertson called him and said, Don, I'd like you to be the vice president of accounting for the Christian Broadcasting Network. My dad believed God was calling him there, and he moved the family to Virginia. It was a time of unparalleled growth for that network. My father was at the center of it. He was lauded at every turn until one day in the seventh year he got to the office and he found a note from Pat Robertson that read, Don, your services are no longer required. That's all it said. No discussion. No reasons given. He was there one day and can the next. But you know something? Every month of my father's life after being fired from CBN, and I did the math this week, 906, uh, 900 and, sorry, 396 weeks or months, he made a contribution to CBN. Every month of his life. And when I heard that he was doing that, I went to him and I said, Dad, how could you give money to a guy who fired you? And I'll never forget what my dad said. Jesus didn't fire me. I love what Jesus is doing there. Besides, dead flesh don't hurt. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here in this text. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Paul in Galatians 5 says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then Peter lists a few of them. But when you begin to analyze all those that he mentions, all those examples of debauchery, they stem from one great passion 
and that's the passion for our own pleasure. 300 years before Jesus, Epicurus, the great Greek philosopher, said we recognize pleasure as the first good innate in us. It's from pleasure that everything begins, every act of choice, every act of avoidance. It's from pleasure that we turn. It's to pleasure that we turn again and again, using the feelings of pleasure as a standard by which we judge every good. You know what that means? Do you know what Epicurus is saying? He's saying we have one singular passion, and that's our own pleasure. And you know what that means? If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. If you've got something I want, I'm either going to take it from you or match you. If you think you're special, let me tell you how special I am. Every one of us has that kind of human nature. We want to be loved. We want to be special. We want to matter. We want our life to be filled with meaning. And what Peter is saying is arm yourselves against that passion that wars against your soul. And the amazing thing is he uses a word here that he only uses one time. In fact, he's the only person in all of the Bible to use this word, this word arm. It literally means to take up a weapon. It means to raise your weapon to fight. So what is that weapon he's calling us to take up? It's the suffering of Jesus Christ. It's the cross. It's the place where Jesus gave up everything for you. And what Peter is saying is take it up. In other words, you have an insatiable desire to be loved. You will do everything in your power to know that you're loved. And what Peter is saying is it will never be satisfied unless you go to the cross. Peter's saying every one of you, including me, we want to feel special and significant. In fact, it's an insatiable desire. We all have it. And what Peter is saying is there's only one place it can be satisfied, and that's in the sufferings of Jesus Christ at the cross. We want meaning in life. We want a meaning that, that goes against all of the buffeting of circumstances. We want a meaning that isn't changed by our age or our health. We want a meaning that is solid and stable. And Peter says that's an insatiable desire and there's only one place it can be satisfied. And that's at the cross. Peter is saying there's only one place where we can get that basic desire for pleasure met, and that is at the cross in the sufferings of Jesus. And Peter says, arm yourselves with that way of thinking. What he's saying is, there's one thing that can change your mind, and that's the cross and the suffering of Jesus there. Second, not only will the cross change your mind, it'll change your will. Look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, many people have argued about this verse over the centuries. People that are Hebrews, people that are Gentiles, men and women, 
over the centuries. In fact, listen to what one commentator says. This is a very difficult passage that ends with a very difficult verse. Once again, we have the idea that the gospel is preached to those who are dead. And so the question here is, who is he talking about? Is he talking about those who are literally dead, who are in the grave? Is he talking about a gospel that is proclaimed to those after they die? Or is he talking about people who are dead spiritually, who have been brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit? William Barclay, the famous Scottish commentator, says of this verse, this is one of the beautiful verses in Scripture that speaks of the power and scope of the atonement of Jesus Christ beyond the grave. And there's a lot to that. But that's a side issue. The real issue is what Peter says at the end of this verse. Look what he says. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, that is, judged for their sins and condemned to death, they nevertheless might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now that applies to every Christian. Every one of you were dead spiritually before you knew Christ. You were deaf. You were dumb. You could not see spiritual things. You could not apprehend the revelation of God. God had to change your mind. He had to change and open your ears. He had to unstop your, your blind eyes. That's what He does. Every one of us was dead spiritually. But because of the sufferings of Christ, we've been made alive to live in the Spirit the same way God does. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in the Spirit the way God does? It means that we have a will that is free to will what God wills. We have a will that is free to will what God wills. And that brings us to arguably the best definition of free will ever uttered by any person, and that was Jonathan Edwards, who said that free will, a human's will, is always free to choose what its heart desires. In fact, our will will only choose what our hearts desire. And that's why before Jesus resurrects us, none of us can follow God because none of us want to. Until the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and gives us a desire, we begin to see Jesus as beautiful and desirous. We don't want to follow the ways of God. I have a friend who's a Christian who identifies himself as an alcoholic because for 25 years he was. He says he still is. But for the last 30 years, he hasn't had a drink. I remember one time I said to him, how did you give it up? He said, I didn't give it up, it gave me up. In other words, there came a time when I no longer desired it. Because I I desired something better. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. He knows that the work of the Holy Spirit is not just to resurrect us to new life, but to change our heart's desires. To replace our 
old desires with new, stronger, godly ones. And that's what he means when he says, even those who are dead, judged in the flesh the way people are, might live in the Spirit the way God does. Think of what he's saying. He is saying that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can begin to have a will that wills what God wills. And what he says in the balance of this letter is, there are places where we can put ourselves where the Holy Spirit does that work together in our lives. In the Word, in studying the Word, in fellowship with other believers, in positions of humility, in places of humble service, in places of honest prayer, where the Holy Spirit enables us to will the same will God wills. And then third, notice the cross also changes our hearts. Look at verses 8, and 10, 8 to 10. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In 1944, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were imprisoned in a German concentration camp 56 miles north of Berlin. It was called Ravensbrück. They were in that camp with 48,000 other women living in deplorable conditions living in degrading conditions. But after one month in that barracks, Betsy decided to start a Bible study. She had a few pages of the Scripture, and she began to read it between the bunks, and a number of women began to circle around. Not everyone. Some were skeptical, some were sick, some were angry. Some wondered, if there is a God, where is He now? One day, Betsy was speaking about the goodness and the love of God and how God never leaves us and we can come to Jesus and He always has open arms, not a pointed finger. And a woman yelled from her bunk, if your God's so good and if He's always there, why does He allow this kind of suffering? And with that, she lifted her hands and began unwrapping them to reveal broken and mangled fingers. And she shouted, I'm the first violinist of the Berlin Symphony Orchestra. And your God allowed this? For 30 seconds, there was absolute silence. And then Corey stepped next to her sister and she said to that woman and to everyone else, we really can't answer that question. All we know is that God became a man. God became like one of us and came to this earth and was nailed to a cross for every one of us. And He did it all for love. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. 
Look at everything he advocates. He says, above all. And then he gives a whole list. Above all, be hospitable, loving, selfless. All of this. And every one of those acts is a response to what's been given to you by a suffering Jesus. What Peter is saying is, yes, you are suffering. Yes, it's difficult. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But fix your eyes on the one who didn't deserve any of it. The only perfect one to ever live. God, who suffered and died for you. Roy Smith is a legendary newspaper editor. He died a few years ago in Hollywood, California, but he grew up in Nebraska. And he said before he died, he said, you know, when I was working newspapers, I probably oversaw more than 100,000 stories. But of all those stories, there's only one that I think about every day. And then he told it. He said, I was in fifth grade, taking a test, and all of a sudden the principal came to the door. He didn't knock, he just walked in. He came all the way to my desk and said, come with me. Your daddy's been hurt. Now normally I would have enjoyed getting out of a test, but it scared me. And I broke free from him, and I ran all the way home. And on the way, I passed an old man who was in a rocking chair on his porch. And he said, boy, no need to run. He's no longer with us. And when I got to the mill, I discovered that man was right. My daddy was gone. Three days later, we had his funeral. People came from all over town to pay their respects. I don't remember anything that happened. Those three days are a blur. But the next day, the next day I've never forgotten. In fact, I think of it every day. I think of that next day as if it were yesterday. My older brother and I were given the unenviable task of going to the mill to clean out his locker. My mother couldn't do it. So we walked there in tears to pick up his belongings. I opened the locker, and the first thing my brother and I saw were his tools. Right next to them was his jacket and his extra work pants. But then I looked down at the bottom of his locker and saw his shoes. He only had one pair. The medics took him off his dead body before they took him to the morgue. Ray said, when I picked them up, the first thing I saw were two giant holes on the soles of each shoe. And then it hit me. We didn't have much money. And yet the week before, my daddy had taken me to the store to get my own shoes. 
suddenly I realized that he spent the last week and maybe the last year standing on a cement floor all day in his stocking feet so I could have shoes. may sound funny, but whenever I think of my dad, 60 years later, I always think of his feet. You know, Peter could understand that. He's writing 30 years after the cross. 30 years after Jesus hung there, bleeding and being stabbed. He didn't see much of it because he couldn't look. But now he sees it every day. When he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of his hands. When he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of his side. When he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of his feet. When he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of his heart. What makes a Christian life any different than a Muslim life? It's not how you live. It's why you live the way you live. It's because you know that he gave everything for you. And you know that in his suffering, that's where the power is. The power of love for you, for me, and for everybody else. Suffering is the gateway to love. Think about that. Amen.